Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show as we come to you from the outskirts of our construction zone. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. We we are not we did not have to relocate to the glass enclosed nerve center. Well, that is true. We, we are in our normal recording studio, but it is on the fringes of the construction zone. And we've been under construction for three solid weeks so far. Yeah, well, we didn't have a show last week. Why didn't we have a show last so week? So I believe last week was because somebody who is not part of this household thought it was a really good idea to have a barbecue on a Sunday night and not a Saturday night. That's what we did. I kept trying to figure out what it was that we did. It's a retirement party that we were obliged to go to. Well, you are correct. And, and we went out of our... Yes, we were obliged to go, but we went out of our own free will and... We were happy to celebrate the momentous <laughs> event. This was not an event that we dreaded, but we and, and we were not the only ones who questioned the host decision to host this event on Sunday night as opposed to Saturday. Or even Sunday afternoon as opposed to Saturday. Yep. I got nothing there. But yeah, thank you for the reminder. I kept trying to go, did we have a show last week? Because I kept saying we were going to do a show a week in the month of July. And and we failed it. We failed. But you didn't think we were going to have a show this week. I did not. I did not think that we would return from Milwaukee. Fancy now. There's no No. accent there. And a number of breweries means we got to go like... All right. Like, really base. I mean, that is that is not a fancy schmancy town. No, Milwaukee. Well, especially when it was explained to us that when it came to containers you can carry your alcoholic beverages in. In Milwaukee, they don't even care if you're using a Yahtzee shaker. That seems to be an appropriate <laughs> container. Although, we were on a brewery tour that told us that they would fill any growler from any other brewery which was fine and he was laughing and joking around and said i'll fill any container and i said a home depot five gallon bucket i'll buy the lid and he goes no i think we need something with a screw top so i just need to find a five gallon bucket with a screw lid yeah and by the way he said he would fill that bucket for ten dollars Oh, he did tell me I couldn't use that because he does. He's like, I do need a narrow neck. Ah, okay. So I need an urn. <laughs> it's what I need. And a stopper. And a stopper. A cork should be good. So should you happen to be in the vicinity of Milwaukee, we do highly recommend paying a visit to the Sprecher Brewery. And you might know the name Sprecher because they're actually known for their root beer. They are, but outside of Wisconsin and Illinois, they're still fairly unknown. But what we learned when we were when we visited the brewery is that um, one apparently now you can find them in Costco. many Costco's. I don't know if they've fully made it nationwide yet, but they're planning on being nationwide with their root beer in Costco. And also, Dollar Tree stores are carrying several varieties of their beverages now. Um, but they also make out and they started as a brewery making beer and still do make beer 
that's quite good. Their beer is very good. Um, but we won't spoil the tour. The tour is short, sweet, funny, and enjoyable and comes with um, all-you-can-drink non-alcoholic sodas um, of infinite numbers of varieties. I mean, there's a lot of them, like bellyache number if you go for the mm-hmm. whole list. And up to four samples of beer. And I was expecting like flight size samples. No, they hand you a pint glass and say, here. Yeah. So... Yeah, uh, bring a DD and uh, go and enjoy. It's By the way, it's a $12 per person over 21 tour. That makes it the best deal in beer in all of Milwaukee. Especially when you consider that when they first started, it was a dollar and it was all you could drink beer. So they did sure. ratchet it back a little bit. Yeah, they, they, they did cut back on, you know increased margins as it were and apparently it is a thing in milwaukee that if you work at a brewery you may drink while working yes well that's a lot of breweries are like that who knew i mean i would have thought that running machinery was not something you do inebriated but apparently well they did explain that their professional fork dri- forklift drivers do a lot of honking there is a so lot maybe of- that that's the, the key piece there is the extra honking uh, possibly, possibly. Um, anyway, so we highly recommend that tour. There's also a lot of good food, um, and we ate some of it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, I don't think we had a bad meal while we were there. We did not, and we did not indulge nearly as much as we did when we went to New York a couple of weeks ago. Well... We weren't in Milwaukee for as long. Okay. So, anyway, Formula One. And even though we were in Milwaukee, we got to see qualifying before we left. And then we saw the race. I know. Uh, Normally, when we travel, we miss it. Well, there was that. But the bar at the hotel was playing the race. At breakfast, yeah. And that (laughs) happened to be where the breakfast was. Because, like, you know, as you can expect in Milwaukee, um, everything happens in the bar. Yeah. So we did watch that. We will talk about that in a bit. But first, you know, we've got to talk about the big news that broke on Thursday, which I think we were equally surprised as we were not surprised. Exactly. Um, I'm guessing that we're not going to get invited to his Sunday retirement barbecue. And we're speaking about Sebastian Vettel. And and. You know, we, we'd probably have to reach out to him on his new social media channel. No. So, and, and actually, that was going to be my big story on Wednesday for the week. Sebastian Vettel established a presence on Instagram. He has an, it is an official Instagram account. And what's interesting was leading into this on, well, at the French Grand Prix, Natalie Pinkham said that, you know, she had interviewed Seb in the pen, and one of the questions that she'd asked him is, you know, at some point in, in the near future, you know, in the foreseeable future, you're going to retire. We don't know when it's going to be, but with all of your causes that you become so vocal about and so passionate about, who is going to take up that torch for you? And Sebastian's response was Instagram. And she's, she's like, at the time... I didn't understand what he meant. And I just kind of like smile and nodded and moved on. On Thursday, it all made sense. 
Wow. Because on Wednesday, he launched his Instagram account. And then on Thursday, we get the news that Sebastian Vettel has announced at the end of the season, he would be retiring from Formula One. Which, I mean, was huge. But then he wrote, or and there's a video of it, mm-hmm. of an incredibly thoughtful statement where he actually goes into explaining his reasons. Like, he doesn't owe us a reason when he yeah. wanted to retire. His statement, and, and we will play, because it's about four minutes long, we'll play it at the end of the show. Okay. So if you stay to the end of the show, you will get to hear Sebastian's statement. And and really, I think his words, much like some of the other things that have happened in the last couple of weeks, his words coming from him do him more justice than us repeating them. But when I read the statement, I honestly, I only got about four paragraphs into it, and I went, wow. If this was the Sebastian Vettel we had seen in the Ferrari years. In the Red Bull years. In the Red Bull years. And we saw glimpses of it, but especially like in the angry Seb years, we would have been a Sebastian Vettel fan a whole lot sooner. And that's 100% correct. I mean... I don't think that it's possible that I'm ever going to not be a Lewis Hamilton fan, first and foremost. Yeah. I absolutely, he, the, he's got my heart in so very many ways. But there are some drivers that come through and I'm like, oh, wow, I really like them. And Seb is historically, you know, the Red Bull years, he was arrogant Seb. And the Ferrari years, he was angry Seb. His Aston Martin years have been thoughtful, funny, enjoyable, socially aware and Mm -hmm. active, and open, Seb. So I I do want to share some of his statement now. And and I will read that. Like I said, you should listen to it at the end of the show. But he, he said you know, wanted to explain the reasons behind his decision. And he said, I love this sport. It has been central to my life since I can remember. But as much as there is life on track, there is my life off track too. Being a racing driver has never been my sole identity. I very much believe in identity by who we are and how we treat others rather than what we do. Who am I? I am Sebastian, father of three children and husband to a wonderful woman. I am curious and easily fascinated by passionate or skilled people. I am obsessed with perfection. I am tolerant and feel we all have the same rights to live, no matter what we look like, where we come from, and who we love. I love being outside. I love nature and its wonders. I am stubborn and impatient. I can be really annoying. I like to make people laugh. I like chocolate and the smell of fresh bread. My favorite color is blue. I believe in change and progress that every little bit makes a difference. I am an optimist and I believe people are good. Next to racing, I have grown a family and I love being around them. I have grown other interests outside of F1. My passion for racing and F1 comes with lots of time spent away from them and takes a lot of energy. 
Committing to my passion the way I did in a way I thought was right does no longer go side by side with my wish to be a great father and husband. The energy it takes to become one with the car and the team to chase perfection takes focus and commitment. And he goes on from there. But, I mean, just those pieces of his statement, I was just, I was blown away with. Who knew his favorite color was blue? Well, that too. <laughs> I didn't know he had a third kid. I mean, that. By the way, the other thing that was revealed in some of the conversations that we have never heard before. Sebastian's wife's name is Hannah. Oh. And she is supportive of the decision, whichever way that Seb goes. Seb has been has admitted that he really doesn't have a plan just yet. So he doesn't know, you know, we've seen like Mark Weber and, and many of the others, um, and Jensen Button's another one, that when they retire from Formula One, they head off to other series. They head off to do other things. They commentate. They become ambassadors for Porsche. Um, you know, they, they start to invest in themselves as a business mm-hmm. so that they can continue to function and, and continue to live and continue to generate income. Seb doesn't know what he's going to do just yet. And he's a little concerned about that. Um, I do think from what we've seen and heard from Seb, um, if he wanted to move into an advisory role, an ambassador role, e- even probably a pundit role, he would be welcomed at one of several locations with fairly open arms. I'd love to see Sebastian Vettel replace Nico Rosberg in punditry. That would be cool too. I, I'm honestly my big hope, and and, and I would again wouldn't have said this three years ago, but my big hope is that when Seb goes into retirement, that's not the last we hear from him. Exactly. Much like Mark Weber, much like Jensen Button, that when he goes into retirement. We still see him. We still hear him, and he still participates. Now, obviously, he's probably not, especially listening to a statement. He's probably not going to be willing to go to all twenty-four races. Um. <laughs> well, no, but I could see him. Um, I could see him doing a lot of different things. I mean, I could see him choosing a Jackie Stewart-esque path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see a little bit of Nigel Mansell. Yeah, I mean, Nigel Mansell goes and and he does uh, driver stewarding duty every so often. That would be neat for for Seb to do every once in a while and pop up at at a race. Um, He has not ruled out racing in another series, but there's no talk that he might be moving into another series. Um, But that could be a potential, too, is that he doesn't fully step away from racing He's just acknowledging that he's he's stepping away from Formula One, and I can understand that. I mean, we're we're learning, and especially with the number of races in a season, we're learning what a mental toll and a family toll this is taking. Mm-hmm. And Seb says that this isn't something that he decided overnight. No, he said really the the, the decision that was made at the last minute was the one of when he was going to go and tell the team that, yeah, this is it. He said he'd been thinking about it for a while. Um, certainly when he left Ferrari is is when it became 
more of an area of consideration and an area of thought. Um, but it was a matter of when he was going to go to Aston Martin and pull the trigger there. And of course, this leads to the question of, well, who takes the seat? Uh-huh. There's, there's all sorts of possibilities of who could take the seat. There, there's possibilities. And, and I think some of what's going on here is, and, and some of the reason why Seb has decided to pull the trigger, is that while he believes he's still in some of his finest racing form, I think he also acknowledges that Aston Martin's probably about the best team that he's going to get. Mm-hmm. And while, yes, Aston Martin and the Stroll family wants that team to win championships and wants them to be at the front, it's a big ask. Yeah, they're not there. They're, they're just not there. And, and I'm sure Lawrence doesn't agree that it's a big ask, but it's a big ask. And I, I think Seb recognizing that that's he's ready for it before the team will be, mm-hmm. and there's not going he doesn't have a chance to move into Mercedes. We're back to Ferrari or to Red Bull, and those are really the only teams where it would be an option. Right. So leave on your own terms. Well, and I think that that's that's some wisdom that we're seeing in Seb. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of listed off the traits we've been seeing in Seb lately, you know, at least in ending with open Seb, but wise Seb is also one of those that mm-hmm. we're seeing. Um, so I think it's great that he's going to leave on his own terms. I'm not worried that he doesn't have a plan. Honestly, I would not no. be surprised if he needs six months to get his head put back on and, you know, be with his family. He's a little worried about not having a plan. I'm not worried about it, but like I said... I just hope that this isn't the last we see of him. That's exactly what I hope. And I hope that that having an Instagram account, because he's always shunned social media, having an Instagram account is the first sign that we will have more of Seb. Mm -hmm. So there's been a couple of rumors swirling around the seat. Um, The biggest rumor, and and Seb has said formally that while... He does not have a say in the in the direction that Aston Martin goes. His endorsement would go to Mick Schumacher, mm. which not a huge surprise. Yeah, um, there is among the many rumors that have been flying around this week. There is a rumor that, um, and it sounds like, according to the rumor, the decision is coming not from the Ferrari camp, but from the Schumacher camp, that Mick does not intend to renew his contract with Ferrari Driver Academy, thereby to release him so that he could take the seat over at Aston Martin. Hmm. That's a rumor. It is not confirmed. Okay. Um, But there was the other odd state. And again... I know he was signed by McLaren, not by Aston Martin. However, Chip Ganassi Racing has filed civil action against Alex Palau in order to try and keep him with the team. Um, (laughs) Alex Palau's attorney, Rachel Epstein of Quinn Emanuel Urquhart and Sullivan LLP, 
released a statement in response saying, we are disappointed that Chip Ganassi Racing would attempt to keep Alex from an opportunity to compete in Formula One. And even more so with uh, CGR's public court filings and continued commentary of the press on him, on this matter. Oh my. So his lawyer talking about an opportunity for Alex to compete in Formula One and McLaren going, well, he's signed by the organization, but we're not committing him to Formula One. Yeah. This is th- this is odd. Never never mind the fact that Chip Ganassi rate and, and I mean I appreciate the boldness of the statement. But I guarantee you that whether or not Alex had a chance to go race in Formula 1 would not be a decision point for Chip Ganassi racing as to whether or not to let him go with the contract. Well, there's that part too. But <laughs> I'm kind of just questioning this this little scenario. Alex wants to go to McLaren. He wants to sign the contract. He, he signed. He wants to sign the contract with McLaren. Why is Chip Ganassi fighting him so hard? Yeah. This is... Uh, <laughs> this is a lot of drama that I don't think should necessarily be drama. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's an odd scenario. So the other... You know, we, we've had the rumor percolating for a while about Porsche and Red Bull. Mm-hmm. So we seem to have details that this is moving forward. So the thing to understand is while we don't have an official release, this has to happen in the EU. And in order for this to happen, they need to get approval from the various antitrust and anti-cartel authorities around the world that there's nothing fishing going fishy going on well once you turn around and start to make those filings things aren't private anymore <laughs> and they start to come out into the open so this past week um in morocco in particular so in order to pull this off in, in order to do this particularly in the eu which is needed here you need to make regulatory filings in 20 different countries. Oh, my word. So, Morocco, rather, is one of the other... Oh, I'm sorry. Besides in the EU, they had to apply in 20 countries outside the EU. Okay. So, it's more than just the EU. So, the EU covered one. I said that wrong. And then there's an additional 20 other countries that they had to file in, including Morocco... And Morocco, and I don't know why they had to file in Morocco. I don't, I, I don't know what piece of business holding meant that they had to file it, but they had to file in Morocco, and Morocco requires that they have to make that, those filings public. Oh. So in the document that was filed with the Consul de la Concurrence, um, it reveals that Portia notified the council on July 8th that will be setting out a 10-year partnership with Red Bull, which includes a 50% stake in its Grand Prix operation. Wow. It suggests that the partnership will be formally announced this week on Thursday, on August 4th. Okay. So we don't have any confirmation on that. But, you know, the, the two notable pieces there... One, the 50% stake, because I don't think Honda had that. 
And I don't think any of the other, you know, Renault ever had that kind of a, any kind of a stake in the company. But the other that I did think was key was the 10-year deal. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is Red Bull learning a lesson. Yeah, tie them up. And tie them up so that you don't run into the situation of, okay, we're going to take Honda, and then three years later, they're going to go, up. Oh, yeah, we're done. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back. Mm-hmm. But we're done. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 10-year deal. Nice. However, Christian Horner says there's still a lengthy process that needs to happen. They're not quite done yet. We're not quite there. That's This is all just a rumor. And somebody on the side said that the whole... Re- and, and basically, conf- somebody in the Red Bull organization, we don't know for sure it was Christian, but somebody in the Red Bull organization confirmed that the reason why the announcement did not happen in Austria was because of the delay in the engine regulations. Mm. And Christian says that it it is the engine regulations that is a big part of the hang-up here. In that Porsche still wants some kind of confirmation that the MGUH is going away and the regulations will be a bit friendlier to new manufacturers. Got it. So... We shall see if we have an announcement this week. We probably won't talk about it next weekend, because we won't be having a show next weekend. No, we will not have a show next weekend. We won't even have a surprise show. It, 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 it's, we're just not going to be able to do it. Sorry. <laughs> Which, honestly, when you think about it, it's, it's going to get interesting over the next couple of weeks, because now we're off to summer break, and the news dries up a bit. And you're not motivated to go and have a show when the news dries up. And in September, we we couldn't time it with Formula One's break. So September, that's our break. Yeah. Well, we'll see what we can find. You never know. We could pull out some test item from the test lab that's been languishing to have a show. So instead of a Formula One podcast, we'd have a, a, a test kitchen podcast. Is that what you're saying? A, a test item, a test tech item. I don't know. We could give a tour of the new construction. I don't know. You never know what we could wind up doing. Okay. Because an audio tour of new construction sounds like an exciting show, doesn't it? Oh, doesn't it? I'm, I'm sure nobody would listen to that at all. Somebody would listen. Somebody would. Okay. So... Michael Massey is now starting to talk to the press a little bit. He 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 is, um, and as much as I say this kind of jokingly, I think it's actually kind of serious. Um, emerging from the bunker that he was forced to retreat into, um, and as we hear a little bit more about it, no, I really do think he, he was forced to retreat into a bunker. Um, the level of online hate mm-hmm. that was thrown at him, that was racist, that was criminal, that was every bit of ugliness that you could possibly imagine from the internet. Um, he said he felt like he was the most hated man in the world. And, you know, we've made our position fairly clear about the decision-making process and the way he managed the series through the season. 
that aside, I sympathize with him over this because there was no reason for any of this kind of behavior to be aimed at him. And I do not agree with, with folks doing that. No. And I can completely disagree with a lot of calls that he made. Mm-hmm. I can disagree with the consistency that he had. I could go so far as... Or a lack of consistency for that Yeah, there, that was it. Mm-hmm. I could go so far as to think that I don't think he was really good in his job. But that does not mean that I wish him ill as a human being Mm -hmm. that I don't that he deserved any of the level of outcry that we are now hearing about um and I'm horrified again we go back to that same thing I think this has become the recurring theme lately of essentially hooliganism within Formula Mm -hmm. One it's these people that have supposed anonymity and they say outrageous things and they are wrong and it is just wrong now again i go back to i don't think he was a great race director full stop i think he was over his skis in his job yeah but that doesn't mean that there's a death threat that's deserved or that he should even be made to feel like the most hated man in the world and you know to to tie into the the this story to tie into the stories actually in response to I think is probably the better way to say it the stories coming out of Austria of the truly horrific fan behavior that has occurred and that we have seen formula 1 with the full endorsement of the FIA and all of the teams and most if not all of the drivers has launched a new campaign around fan behavior mm-hmm. and trying to stamp out this poor behavior. Um, now, for those of us in the U.S., I don't know if it was our cable company or just the world feet or ESPN's incompetence, while... We know there is a video message put up. We couldn't hear it because we didn't get any volume like we didn't get for most of the first five minutes of the pre-race coverage this weekend. Um, So we're polling other people in other parts of the country. Did your ESPN cut out volume for the first five (laughs) minutes of Grand Prix Sunday? And this seems to be happening more and more often because we've now had it a couple times that some stretch of the program or some stretch of the Formula One broadcast has come across with no audio. Yeah. You know what's really delightful is how angry you get when that happens. I'm glad it delights you. That was sarcasm <laughs> and you know it. Um, you know, I don't know which irritated me more. The lack of volume. Actually, no, I know exactly what irritated <laughs> me more. The lack of volume there or the cutting back from a replay of mechanic and fan reaction to something and hearing the sky sports screaming and yelling over track action that we completely missed because we were watching stuff that nobody cared about coverage was bad this week the world feed production and and this new camera that that they gave us that was up in the grandstands 
shooting down between the fans' heads, and that was the first replay they gave us of the start, where we couldn't actually see anything but the cars passing between the gaps in the fans' heads. Yeah, that was not a great shot either. Maybe. I don't know. You should go to video production school and offer yourself as for service with a Formula One so they could do a better job of the world feed. Possibly. So we know the drivers are still upset with stewarding. Yes. Um, and how all of that's going down and the, the decisions coming out of the race directors. Um, not just the ongoing push about jewelry and some of the other smaller rules, I will say. Now, I, I say smaller because they are in scope of what they cover and what they regulate, and they seem to be kind of minor. But they are important to the well-being of the sport and how things are done and, and handled. Um, but the... In... in where am I going with this? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I stopped somewhere along the line because there was like a left turn that took you to Albuquerque and I wasn't yeah. sure why you went that way. So in France, you know, we, we've been hearing from the drivers for weeks now that they're getting frustrated with, with the stewards. In France, um, the two marshals, uh, or excuse me, the two race directors, Niles Wittich and Eduardo Freitas, sat down with the drivers in a driver's meeting and went and reviewed several previous incidents, um, looked at the video footage, looked at the calls that were made, looked at why they made the calls that they made with the drivers and had the discussions with them. Um, what was important to note about this is that this is something that Charlie Whiting used to do pretty much every week. It was something that Michael Mossy used to do pretty much every week. This is the first time that the current uh, race directors have sat down with the drivers to do this. You know, you went in the pre-show. Um, you told me that. Mm -hmm. And I, I sat back and I was like, wow, okay. Did nobody tell them that they should do that was my first thought. And then my second thought is, wait a minute, rewind that. Michael Mossy sat down with them and walked them through, walked the drivers through the calls he was making. Mm-hmm. And there was still such hate and discontent over the calls he was making. I'm sure that the drivers didn't just sit in that room and go, oh, well, I know, I understand now. So how that didn't foster a communication with Mossy, I don't understand. Well, I, first of all, the, the relationship between the drivers and Michael got worse as the year went on mm -hmm. last year. However, just because Michael, you know, reviewed these incidents with him, and we don't know whether or not he reviewed everyone, but he reviewed some incident, incidents with them and why they, he came to the conclusions that they did and why they, doesn't mean that the drivers agreed with those decisions, even after it was explained to them. But he at least took the time to have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that, but... The the other thing that is been different compared to Charlie Whiting and Michael Massey is that 
while it didn't happen often, Charlie and Michael would occasionally make themselves available to the press and would issue statements to the press and would have conversations with the press. That would give both the drivers and the teams a little bit more insight into you know, what he was thinking and how he would lean on certain things. Mm-hmm. The current race directors do not talk to the press at all. Now, they admit that some of it is, um, and it's a desire by the FIA to keep the race director's profile in general lower than Michael's was and lower than Charlie's was. Again, kind of in defense of them and avoiding the the the, the issues that we've run into with Michael around the internet and yeah. the fan behavior. Um, so some of it is that, but some of it is just that they don't want to be involved with the press and the other stuff. They just want to do the job and go on. I okay. On the surface, I am totally okay if they want to do their job and go on. You know, be really mm-hmm. good at your job, keep your head down, and do it amazing. That's fine. But I think that there's also a push from the drivers that they're being penalized for things they they are either not expecting or they're being harsher. Um, You know, I think that there's just a sense that um, these race stewards are stricter than prior. They they certainly are. And and again, when it comes to things like the bans on jewelry and stuff like that, these... Those rules were always there. Mm -hmm. They were never enforced. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, okay, if they're not enforced, they shouldn't have been enforced and drivers should be getting away with it. But it does beg the question of, if you have rules that you're not bothering to enforce, do you really need the rules? Right. And that's a different question. Um. The other area that is still of concern, and and I'm not sure where all of the drivers are on this idea. I know where we are on it, and that's around the track limits and and the stricter interpretation of the track limits. There's still some confusion in some areas. Max Verstappen in particular talks about um, there was a part of the track this weekend that instead of having solid white lines, had dashed white lines. (laughs) And... It had dashed white lines where if you went off the track, there was a gravel trap and you would be penalized because you'd go through the dra- the gravel trap, which is why it's there, and possibly damage the car and all this other stuff. So if they go over there, what do you need to give them delete uh, lap times for and give them warnings and track track limits over there? Because there's gravel. Right. And there's all these other mitigating factors if they go off the track. Um, that's not my issue here. And again, I don't have a problem with this idea that white lines are the boundaries and we're going to leave, and it doesn't matter what corner you're in. Mm-hmm. What I don't like, and now that it's happened twice to Sergio Perez, it bothers me that much more of this idea of we either had a violation that we missed and then came back after the session and decided we're going to penalize you or 
we had a vi- we we thought we had a violation, and then everybody looked at the cameras and went, "Yeah, no, that 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 was legit. That that wasn't a violation." And now you've got to reinstate a time. If you're gonna enforce track limits, one, you got to get it right, and you got to get it right immediately. They have to get a technological solution. It and they cannot exist. be. It cannot be Bob and Earl in the cat in the commentary box going did he didn't he mm-hmm. it just can't this is this is the pinnacle of motor racing it's the top end for a reason and you don't do it halfway and the technology exists we know it exists it's at some tracks i don't believe it's at a track that formula one races in um but um and why did the name just slip my head um What's his face's dad, who used to race for Renault and commentates for BBC, and what's his Julian Palmer? Thank you. Whoa, Jonathan Palmer. He Sounds- owns several tracks. I know. It, it just all of a sudden it, it it went away. Jonathan Palmer's tracks, at least some of them, I have heard, if not all of them, have timing loops in place. That if a car breaks the the beam, they know instantly that they have exceeded track limits and a time can be deleted. So the technology is there. You just have to make it part of your your class one certification. Exactly. And I get that it's probably not cheap to do. And it's probably not something that's going to get instituted in a year. But... Put it on the roadmap. Put mm-hmm. it in a five-year plan that all tracks with a grade one certification will have the timing loop. Unless you're a road track where, you know, there's not a car width that you can go off the road. Right. Exactly. I mean, putting a timing loop into Monaco is kind of silly. Yeah. I mean, you're going to penalize yourself. You're going to hit the wall. Exactly. And that's, that's going to be the end of it. That... I don't mind enforcing track limits, but you got to get it right. And you got to get it right immediately, not later on. Exactly. I agree with you 100% there. So this weekend, we had the final race of, while not mathematically the first half of the season, it is essentially what feels like the first half of the season. Yeah. It's been a long first half of the season. It's because it's more than half. Yeah, well, it's it's more than that, though. I mean, with the calendar as packed as it is. It's really packed. And I I got to tell you, and I mean, it hurts me to say this. There's too many races on the calendar. I, I love having races. Don't get me wrong. I thoroughly enjoy it. Better races on the calendar. But there's too many of them. It, the back-to-back weekends, I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest. I mean, we're fans. We watch a lot of it. It's a, a, a significant chunk of our weekends dedicated to watching the race and the qualifying. And having so many of them, it's, it's a lot. So as we go into the summer break... Mm-hmm. Where the season, 
where we thought the season was going to be, oh, two races, what it was going to look like, two races in compared to now, totally different. I know. Totally different. Um, I will say, and, and I didn't think so after France, but I do think after this weekend, Mercedes might be figuring something out with the car. And I say that hesitantly because after France, yes, they had a good, I mean, a, a double podium was fantastic. Um, they were still pretty far back. Mm-hmm. Hands down, they were, they were pretty far back. This weekend, though, yeah, we had George on pole. And yeah, it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he still ended up on the podium. I'm, I'm, yes, as much as we root for Lewis, it kind of bugs me that he was in third. And when he ended up at one point in six, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I know. Um, but, yeah, we saw them up front. This is the first time that we saw, and, and yeah, some of it w- was Charles on, on horrible tires. But this was the first time that we saw the Mercedes pass the Ferraris this year. Mm-hmm. And have kind of a fighting chance to hold hold them off. Now, that said, yes, the Mercedes passed the Ferraris, and the Ferraris were a bit handicapped with the tires. I don't care what Mercedes was saying at the end of this race. They weren't going to catch Max. Mm-mm. There was no chance that they were going to catch Max. The only way that Lewis would have had a fighting chance at catching Max was just because of that magic piece that he was on the softs and Max had to have had wiped out those tires. And I'm not convinced he would have been able to pull it off. Or the rain came. That would have been the other possibility. The rain came. But I, I, I don't think that this is a car that they have fully gotten on top of. Um, I, I, I still think at this point that if they're going to win a race, it's because they're going to be in the right place at the right time to pick up the pieces because everybody else blew up. I think that the last two races have shown us that Mercedes is making really good strides forward to solve the problems that they have, that have hampered them this year. It tells me that in my mind, I think they're going to finish strong and I think they'll have a better year next year. We, I hope. The, the question is, that, that I have for the end of the year and into the start of next year is, have they lost so much ground this year that even if they have an improvement on this year's time going into next year, are they still going to be lagging behind everybody else because they've, they've, they've already lost so much mm-hmm. by being this far back. The other thing that, that concerns me is when you really listen to Mercedes and you really hear them talk about what happened on Saturday as opposed to what happened in the rain and free practice three and what happened on, on Friday and especially what happened today, Mercedes still doesn't really know what they did to make the car perform better. I think that's the part that I can't tell if that's um, gamesmanship 
Or if that's reality that Mm -hmm. (laughs) we don't know. We just threw it out there and whoa, look at that. I, I don't know. There's a part of me that really wants to think that it's gamesmanship, that they've figured something out, but they'd really rather not tell anybody what they figured out. And, and it may be, I don't know. But the other thing that, that has really been kind of stunning, and yes, we fully expected, even at the start of the season, no matter how strong Ferrari started, that their strategy was going to bite them in the butt at some point and the team was going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. What we have not expected was that it was going to happen nearly as early in the season as it has and continue to happen. I, I, I do not understand how Ferrari can consistently make such bad strategy calls. So according to Mattia Bonotto, let, let, let's talk about the decision to put Charles on the hard tires, which from what we could see, Without the data that Ferrari had and without the understanding of Ferrari's strategy, from what we could see at the time that that decision was made, it was a monumentally stupid decision. Yeah. But what Ferrari said and what Mattia Bonotto in specific said was that when we finished, when we fitted the hard, our simulation was that it could have been a difficult couple of laps to warm up. It would have been slower to the medium for 10 to 11 laps, and then it would have come back and been faster than the end of that stint. And their plan was for that to be a 30-lap stint. And that was, I think, the big thing, was they were pushing for 30 laps to try and get through to the end of the race. He said, we were trying to protect a position on max. It would have been too long, certainly, for the softs. It would have been difficult at the start at the stint, but it would have come back by the end. They, they were in a bind at this point mm-hmm. because they had already stopped and gone medium-medium. So they were kind of screwed. Right. But it also makes you wonder, given the amount of time that was left, given what we were seeing with the hearts, is one, would it have made better sense for Charles to hang on with the, the mediums that he had, which he seemed to have think that he was fine with go longer on those mediums and jump to the softs or pull the trigger like they did, jump onto the softs, which everybody seemed to be doing fairly well with, run a shorter stint on the softs, and then jump back to mediums. I don't think that scenario, the three-stop scenario that you just outlined, would have been worth it because of the time loss. He would have had to have really pulled ahead. Well, it... I mean, that becomes the question. With fresh, soft tires, like we saw with Lewis, could you have recovered enough to have a chance? I don't know. I don't know. But I agree with you. They were in a bind. I think that they... I think the the flaw in the strategy was the medium-medium. Yeah. Um... I think it was the medium medium with the quick pit stop that they did to jump to the hards when they did. I think if they had held on a bit longer, like they, like they did with Carlos, if they had held on a bit longer and taken a pit stop 10 laps later. 
they probably could have gone medium medium softs mm-hmm. yeah. and that that might have given them a chance but you know once again we're seeing ferrari with these horrible horrible decisions and red bull so red bull admitted that christian horner said their original plan what they wanted to do for this race was to actually start on the hards they started on the softs their plan was to start on the hards what happened was they went out on the hards for the the couple of laps to get onto the grid neither driver could get the tires switched on they went they brought him in they put him on softs for a lap they were struggling to get them switched on but they were having a little bit better luck so they made the decision on the fly to ditch the original strategy and start on the softs wow well that explains max's jump on that opening lap from Mm -hmm. 10th because a lot of the top 10 were running mediums yeah yeah and 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 christian said statistically it looked like the hard was going to be the best race tire they made the decision on the fly and if they they hadn't made that decision max probably wouldn't have won the race probably heck if ferrari had made different decisions and that's (laughs) that's what's so annoying is so many of the issues that that ferrari has had the reason why ferrari's in the position that they're in right now isn't because the car isn't good enough isn't because the drivers aren't good enough it's because the team keeps making crappy decisions you know it it says a lot when the team is turning around and telling carlos Sainz hey, you know, we think you should go and coming out of the safety car, um, give us position to to Charles or, or hang back from Charles 10 seconds to give Charles some breathing room. And Carlos is going, yeah, but if I do that, you're going to put me in range of the Red Bulls and they're going to pass me. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. The folks who should have the data to make the right decisions they're making worse decisions than we are without the data well we too can be armchair strategists so where things stand at this point in the season um i I have to make the call you're not making this call at the halfway point i i actually kind of do i have to say it at this point in the call, mathematically, Charles Leclerc, that, that, is, that is really his only chance is mathematically, Charles Leclerc can still win the championship. Practically, that's a no. Hmm. So as it stands right now, if Charles Leclerc wins every single race, and every single fastest lap and max comes in second he will still lose the championship by one point yes mathematically charles can win the championship that's about it and the worst part about it is that it's because ferrari handed the championship to max verstappen Mm. ouch 
So right now, Max has 258 points to 178 from Charles Leclerc. Okay. Sergio Perez is five points behind at 173 points, followed by George Russell at 158, Carlos Sainz at 156, and Lewis in sixth place at 146 points. And that's after the Hungarian Grand Prix? Yep. Okay. Lando Norris is just got 76 points in seventh place. So over on the constructor side of the house, Red Bull has 431 points to Ferrari's 334. Most notably, though, Mercedes is just 30 points behind Ferrari. That's going to be the fight to see if Mercedes can beat Ferrari or basically Ferrari can lose to Mercedes. Mercedes at this point in the season after this weekend has more podiums than Ferrari does. Wow. I believe the the statistic if it wasn't George and it's almost definitely George but possibly also Lewis has more podiums than Charles does at this point in the season. Wow. But Mercedes is still hunting their elusive win this season. They are. So that's where things stand right now. Um, 431 points for Ferrari, 334, or excuse me, 431 for Red Bull, 334 for Ferrari, 304 for Mercedes, and then the next team is 99 for Alpine and 95 for uh, McLaren. That's that's what you're talking about. Fourth place. Best of the rest right there. Mm -hmm. Fourth place is still really tight. But there's a massive gap. Yeah. Massive gap. So finally. Hey, remember Rich Energy? I keep trying to forget them and they keep coming back. Got bad rash. So if you don't remember, back in 2020, and and I'm sure we all remember Rich Energy's experience with Formula One or Formula One's experience with Rich Energy and Haas and, and... the disastrous sponsorship deal that that was. So in 2020, after everything fell apart with Haas, um, it was announced that Rich had signed a multi-year, multi-million pounds, uh, pound is in British pounds, sponsorship or partnership with British Superbike squad OMG Racing. So this was despite... Um, William Story claiming that they were about to start a Formula One team last year. That didn't happen, in case you were wondering. I, I, I was he, so he curious where that, that team showed up. Yeah. So, um, multi-year deal. They were going to be title sponsor of this of this uh, OMG team. It was going to help fund OMG to move into some road racing that they wanted to expand into. Um, but it was a title sponsorship deal. And according to... Um, the owners of OMG Racing, you know, they were very familiar with what had happened with, with Haas, and they had done all their due diligence, and they were didn't think that there were any problems. According to um, Alan Gardner, who was the team owner in 2020, he said, William Story and the team at Rich Energy have been very transparent in their business dealings to give us full confidence in our partnership to move ahead. Um, 
And William Story expressed his delight at the big move which he felt was needed to show customers that Rich was back. And they were a brand and they were real. Okay. So that was 2020. So not this past week, but the week before because we missed a week. Um, Rich Energy has announced that they have terminated their deal with immediate effect with OMG Energy due to... um, um, Rich Energy stated that they had ended the deal with OMG Racing um, that claims due to Rich Energy's own due diligence of OMG Superbike. So not OMG, but Rich Energy's own due diligence threw up some rather worrying facts following apparent renegotiation talks last November. So that that's what he said. Um, he claimed that um, the team repeatedly acted in bad faith. This is coming from William Story. Him accusing anybody of repeatedly acting in bad faith. Um, now, on the other hand, um, OMG Racing says that um, they were never sponsored by Rich Energy. And now you're going, wait, what? Huh? That's interesting. Um, according to the team, the money was coming from Rich OMG Limited, which is the global rights holder for the sales and distribution of the energy drink. And that Rich OMG Limited is different from Rich Energy. So that's number one. And we're like, what? Um, according to OMG Racing, it has assurances from Rich OMG Limited that its current sponsorship deal remains firmly intact. Oh my. So the full statement that they issued said, following certain social media posts, press interviews, and publications over the last few days, the Rich Energy OMG Racing Team would like to make a statement of facts regarding the sponsorship of the team in the Bennett's British Superbike Championship, the BSB. Rich Energy OMG Racing is not and has not been sponsored by R- William Story. Rich Energy OMG Racing is not and has never been sponsored by the Rich Energy brand owners. Rich Energy OMG Racing is sponsored by Rich OMG Limited, the global sales and distribution rights holder for the drinks, Rich Energy Classic and Rich Energy Sugar Free. The sponsorship agreement was established in March 2020 ahead of the 2020 British Superbike season and remains firmly in place at this time. Yeah. Uh, Following discussions with Rich OMG Limited earlier this week, the Rich Energy OMG Racing Team has been assured that all other existing partnerships that have been undertaken by Rich OMG Limited also remain firmly intact and paid for. Oh, my. So, yeah, we don't know what the heck is going on here. Because once again, Rich Energy is up to their fanciful storytelling again. Financial style. I don't even know if this is financial stylings. I think we learned everything we needed to know when we learned that all of this is choreographed by a man named Named Story. (laughs) And on that note, we'll call it a show. I hereby announce my retirement from Formula One by the end of the 2022 season. Probably I should start with a long list of people to thank now. 
but I feel it is more important to explain the reasons behind my decision. I love this sport. It has been central to my life since I can remember. But as much as there's life on track, there's my life off track too. Being a racing driver has never been my sole identity. I very much believe in identity by who we are and how we treat others rather than what we do. Who am I? I'm Sebastian, father of three children and husband to a wonderful woman. I am curious and easily fascinated by passionate or skilled people. I'm obsessed with perfection. I am tolerant and feel we all have the same rights to live, no matter what we look like, where we come from and who we love. I love being outside and love nature and its wonders. I'm stubborn and impatient. I can be really annoying. I like to make people laugh. I like chocolate and the smell of fresh bread. My favorite color is blue. I believe in change and progress and that every little bit makes a difference. I'm an optimist and I believe people are good. Next to racing, I have grown a family and I love being around them. I have grown other interests outside Formula One. My passion for racing and Formula One comes with lots of time spent away from them and takes a lot of energy. Committing to my passion the way I did and the way I think it is right does no longer go side by side with my wish to be a great father and husband. The energy it takes to become one with the car and the team to chase perfection takes focus and commitment. My goals have shifted from winning races and fighting for championships to seeing my children grow, passing on my values, helping them up when they fall, listening to them when they need me, not having to say goodbye, and most importantly, being able to learn from them and let them inspire me. Children are our future. Further, I feel there is so much to explore and learn about life and about myself. Speaking of the future, I feel we live in very decisive times and how we all shape these next years will determine our lives. My passion comes with certain aspects that I've learned to dislike. They might be solved in the future, but the will to apply that change has to grow much, much stronger and has to be leading to action today. Talk is not enough and we cannot afford to wait. There is no alternative. The race is underway. My best race? Still to come. I believe in moving forwards and moving on. Time is a one-way street and I want to go with the times. Looking back is only going to slow you down. I look forward to race down unknown tracks and I will be finding new challenges. The marks I left on track will stay until time and rain will wash them away. New ones will be put down. Tomorrow belongs to those shaping today. The next corner is in good hands, as the new generation has already turned in. I believe there is still a race to win. Farewell and thanks for letting me share the track with you. I loved every bit of it.